In the heart of the state of the art, at the dawn of the next stage in entertainment, you found no proscenium. found no proscenium the voice of everything immersive i'm your host noah nelson this week on the show felix lajanez of felix and paul is with us to talk about the infinite the installation in montreal that adds a whole new dimension to what they've been doing with the footage they've captured aboard the international space station Matthew Stein of Room Escape Artists Hive Mind is with us to talk about all the things that he's been checking out out there in the great wide world. And Professor Julia Ritter is here to talk about her new book, Tandem Dances, which looks at the art of choreography inside immersive experiences. All that plus the pick of the week. But before we get started, you might want to check the feed not only for the latest edition of the Review Crew podcast, but also for a special bonus pod with the creative team at ILM XLab. Behind Star Wars, Tales from the Galaxy's Edge, A Last Call, we have a great conversation with Jose Perez III, Ian Bowie, and Ronman Ning that dropped on Wednesday this week. And in Review Crew, we talk at length about this latest release as well. Next week's crew also looks to be spinning up into a good one. And now, headlines. Hello, this is Catherine Yu, executive editor of No Proscenium, and here's what's in the immersive headlines. Good news for remote theater makers. Zoom has announced that automatic closed captions in English will become available in February with support for as many as 30 additional languages by the end of next year. The company also plans to support real-time translation services for paid accounts. And Zoom will soon be available in virtual reality as part of a new integration with Facebook's Horizon Workrooms. The plan is for the shared VR meeting app to be able to host Zoom meetings and use Zoom's whiteboard feature. And in a recent piece, Los Angeles Times reporter Todd Martins talks about the connection between museums and themed entertainment after a visit to the Oscars experience at the soon-to-open Academy Museum of Motion Pictures in Los Angeles. Guests will be able to step onto a mock stage and accept an Oscar as part of their museum experience, says Martins. An exhibit that recreates the sensation of winning an Oscar, something that once may have been more of a piece with Universal Studios or Walt Disney World's Hollywood Studios, is now just as at home in an educational facility. And for anybody whose favorite season is awards season, a hearty congratulation goes out to the winners at this year's Venice VR Expanded and Emmy Awards. End of Night by David Adler won Best VR Story at Venice, while the award for Best VR Experience for Interactive Content went to Le Bal de Paris de Blancali by Blancali. And the Grand Jury Prize for Best VR Work at Venice VR Expanded went to Goliath, Playing with Reality by Barry Jean Murphy and May Abdallah. Meanwhile, the VR documentary project Space Explorers, the ISS Experience by Felix and Paul and Time Studios took home a Primetime Emmy for Outstanding Interactive Program. And Apple and Tallship Productions won an Outstanding Innovation in Interactive Programming Primetime Emmy for their work on For All Mankind, Time Capsule, an augmented reality piece set in the world of the TV show of the same name. Plus, Baobab Studios took home their ninth Emmy at their studio for their work on Baba Yaga, which won a daytime Emmy for Outstanding Interactive Media. Goliath, Space Explorers the ISS Experience, and Baba Yaga are all currently available for Oculus devices if you have a VR headset at home, and iPhone users can find For All Mankind Time Capsule on the Apple App Store. These have been your immersive headlines. Thanks, Catherine. Joining us now is Felix Lajanus, who is the Felix in Felix and Paul. And we are, one, super honored to have him on the show, because if you know VR, you know Felix and Paul. And today we're going to be talking about The Infinite, uh, which is a new installation uh, based uh, in large part on the work that they've been doing with the International Space Station, which you can find in the Space Explorers series. Uh, on your VR platform of choice. And Felix, thanks for uh, hopping on the call with us today. Hey, thanks for having me. So 
starting with the basics. And for those who haven't experienced uh, space explorers yet or haven't done their homework, what is the infinite and how does it relate to the space explorers VR series? So the infinite is a large scale, 12,500 square foot, fully interactive exhibition um, that transports audiences to space. There is a portion of that exhibit uh, that is built out of beautiful scenography. And so that portion of the exhibit features audiovisual installations and scenographic installations that are not virtual reality, that are real, that you see with your own eyes. And then after that, there's a huge portion of the exhibit, which is actually 6,000 square foot, that presents a virtual reality, uh, free-roaming experience of being inside of the International Space Station. So for about 35 minutes, audiences get to explore a life-size recreation of the uh, United States segment of the International Space Station and inside of that large-scale uh, you know, reproduction of the ISS, uh, they will discover contents that are hotspots that are floating inside of the interactive ISS and you can trigger those hotspots and they will each reveal a cinematic virtual reality scene that has been filmed in space as part of Space Explorers, the ISS experience. So this feels like it's mixing a whole bunch of the mediums in, in immersive together. So just, just to, just to backtrack, the VR part includes like, like a, like a game engine modeled version of the ISS, like the American part of the ISS. And then you can like open up a cinematic. Am I tracking that right? Yeah, exactly. So if you go to the exhibit, what happens is, um, after having crossed a few zones that are not in virtual reality, that are scenographic, and it's actually very gorgeous scenography, you get to a place where you will put uh, a fully tracked virtual reality headset with headphones on your head, and you will immediately see yourself as an avatar, and you will see the people that are with you as avatars as well. Uh, the avatars that are in your group are going to appear as the same color, and the, all of the other people that you will see inside of the fully interactive uh, exhibit uh, in virtual reality will appear in a distinct color. So you can find uh, the people that you came with uh, throughout your experience. And then once you enter the large free roaming VR space, um, you have the International Space Station that is there at scale. And you walk in and it's a completely fully interactive uh, environment. And you can go anywhere you want, inside and outside of the space station. There is no uh, physical walls really inside of the 6,000 square foot environment that will prevent you from going anywhere. Um, I mean, obviously, there are the walls of the actual you know, large space itself, <laughs> but, that's, but that's pretty enormous. And so you can just walk around and you explore the space station. And all of that is fully interactive. But what happens is that in each of the modules of the space station, um, you will see those floating spheres. They, I mean, we call them hotspots. And using your virtual hands, you press them or you touch them, and they will physically sort of go around you as if you were entering them. And each of those spheres will reveal a 3D 360 cinematic VR scene that has been filmed on the real ISS um, as part of Space Explorers, the ISS experience. And the idea here is that the positioning of that hotspot inside of the uh, virtual, you know, interactive space station is exactly the same as where the camera was in space uh, inside of the real ISS. So there's a real physical alignment between the virtual ISS and the real ISS. And those hotspots are in a way a portal to go from the virtual ISS to the real ISS. No. When did the idea to do this installation come about? Because the undertaking of shooting in space, which I think we're we're not delving deep into here, but you know, you've filmed this in space, like with the help of of NASA and 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 Time and everyone, and have put three sixty cameras up into the space station. I think the next episode is going to have like the spacewalk. And that's a feat in and of itself. This feels like even like 
an order of magnitude of production beyond that. So mm-hmm. was this always the goal or did this come about once you kind of were in process on Space Explorers? Uh, it's a bit of both and I'll, I'll explain how that worked out. So about three and a half years ago, uh, we you know started active conversations with NASA, with the ISS US National Lab with time uh, to send virtual reality cameras to the space station um, and it was already a pretty big bridge to cross. I mean, it, it was obviously a very complex operation. We had to design those cameras, um, you know, modify existing cameras, and we had to go through a ton of logistics to even make that possible from a technological and process standpoint. By the time we managed to send the cameras up there and secure crew hours to do this production, um, we started filming and we immediately realized how powerful it was uh, as we were witnessing what we were capturing and as the production was making progress and, and we're in sort of early 2019, um, we, we saw the potential of it really. And we thought this has to exist uh, beyond uh, the traditional cinematic VR series that you can go and watch on Oculus. I mean, obviously that was the first destination for this content, creating a four-part cinematic VR series. That's what we had in mind initially, but we just felt a very strong impulse to actually make sure that we can reach as broad of an audience as possible. And for us, that meant looking at, you know, creating a version for domes and planetariums, uh, creating a large screen version or what we call an IMAX version uh, based out of this material uh, and also creating an exhibit. And so very early on, uh, we had this thought that it would be great to create a life-size ISS and place our cinematic VR content inside of that life-size ISS for audiences to access the content. Now, we knew that uh, that would mean not placing the episodes inside of the real ISS, but placing scenes. Uh, because we've filmed, you know, all across the space station and all of the modules in many different axes, axis and orientation, um, we felt that, you know, if we could use all of these different shots uh, and place them physically inside of the virtual ISS, then that would be a completely different way to engage with the content than what we are doing with the cinematic VR series, which is, you know, edited and which evolves like a film would evolve in a way with a storyline and all that. And so we thought it's a completely different take on how to bring virtual reality content to audiences, but it's a much more interactive one. So we became excited by that core idea and we turned to Phi. Uh, Phi is a long-term ally of Felix and Paul Studios. Um, And we went to them and we said, let's create something together. They have created in the past couple of years, the the most beautiful exhibitions featuring virtual reality work. And, and we really appreciate their work. And we, we thought, why don't you bring your expertise creating exhibitions featuring VR? And we come in with that idea, with all of that you know, amazing vault of content. And let's try to build around that core idea of a virtual ISS that bridges between you know, interactivity and cinematic. And that became the foundation. So the creative development started uh, early on in 2019, as we were making, you know, all of that filming in space. So they evolved, uh, both these projects evolved hand in hand. We, we've touched on this, I think, a little bit, but I want to kind of spin up on a philosophical level here. You know, what does an installation piece add to the overall effect of presenting immersive work or, or sort of kind of exploding immersive work out that direct at-home experiences can't quite equal. You, you touched on that a, a bit ago, mm-hmm. you know, with, with the difference of like the cinematic uh, sort of has a linear storyline. Here's something that's that feels a lot more sort of spatially oriented. But I wonder if you could talk about this kind of from the <laughs> from the moon's eye view level of sort mm-hmm. of what it means to the art to be able to present things this way. Well, the big difference between a cinematic virtual reality experience and an interactive virtual reality experience is the physical experience. Uh, In an interactive VR experience, especially when you have a gigantic space to walk into and go wherever you want, it becomes quite a 
physically charged experience uh, in the sense that you can now walk through the space and you can discover the space with your own buddy. And in a way, your buddy becomes a storytelling device because in the context of the infinite, you get to choose which hotspot you will watch in whichever order you want to in whichever module you want to. And if you don't want to watch cinematic content, you can just spend time outside of the ISS, just exploring the virtual ISS and discovering the space on your own. And so it, it opens up so many possibilities and you're making these choices in real time just by walking around. And there's also the, uh, there, there are some floating objects that we integrated to the virtual ISS. So you can actually interact with your hands with those physical objects uh, as you, you know, explore the ISS. So it brings that whole dimension of physicality uh, and it also brings the dimension of the social experience because we can have up to 150 visitors at the same time inside of the uh, virtual space station. And as you walk around, you see all of those people as avatars. There, so there's a, a social uh, pleasure or, uh, or, or novelty to that. You know, it's, it's actually quite exciting to be part of, the, of a virtual crowd like that, uh, of people that are physically there, but that you see you know, represented by their avatars. So all of that doesn't exist in the cinematic VR. Uh, but what the cinematic VR brings, if you look at the Space Explorers, the ISS Experience series, is uh, a sense of uh, a cinema in the sense that you can actually sit and you can just dive into a story and you can really articulate a story and follow the evolution of the characters in a way that is closer to cinematic storytelling. So I would say that both the cinematic and the interactive have their strengths. Uh, and what we tried to do inside of The Infinite is to bring you know, the intimacy that we captured with the astronauts as part of the cinematic content. Uh, we try to bring that inside of an interactive world. Of course, we're not telling the story the same way that we are telling in the cinematic VR series. It's more um, you know, different cells of content. It's as if you were experiencing scenes in a random order. Uh, but there, the, the, beauty, the, the, the beauty comes from you making uh, the associations by walking physically and discovering these contents in the order that you want. So it's another form of narrative engagement. I love that phrase. Uh, your body is a storytelling device that actually like sums up a lot of like when we try and talk about immersive work in general, like kind of particularly when things might not be affording people a lot of narrative agency, but there's still this magic to it all. And that phrase right there is, is really efficient at capturing that. And then just, just to clarify for me, so when you say you've got like a hundred plus people in an instance of, uh, in the space at the same time, are they, are they instanced into the same version of the, the virtual space station? So like if you and I were walking together and I pointed something out to you, you would, you would see what I was seeing. Does it work like that? It, it works like that. Uh, you cannot enter the same uh, or at the same time um, the cinematic VR content, which means that once you've triggered a cinematic VR scene, you're on your own. You're inside right. of it by yourself. Um, the person you're with could trigger it at the same time and is going to be experiencing the same content, but you will not be together right. in the content, if you yeah. see what I mean. Like it's yeah. going to it's going to switch from being this social experience to becoming for a moment, because those contents are about 45 to 45 seconds to a minute long. So it's going to become more of an intimate moment between you and the astronauts, you know, in the cinematic world. And then you're going to be back into the large, you know, social environment with all of the people walking inside of the ISS. But yes, if I'm walking with my friend, and we're both avatars inside of the ISS, and I, I point at things, uh, my friend will see what I'm pointing at, and uh, we are sharing the same view and the same environment simultaneously. Fantastic. Like, th that's something that, you know, obviously, there's there's a few companies on the narrative side that play with that and a few other, um, and a few other experiences that do that. But there's there is still a magic to that social aspect of VR and the, the simple, the simple act of like, look at that over there. Like, Oh yeah. Oh wow. Let's go over there. Like still has a bit of a, 
of a verve to it, at least for now. Give it another year and we'll be, we'll be over it. But right now, it's still pretty cool. Well, I don't know if we'll ever be over it because, mm. you know, one of, the main, one of the main differences between, you know, I would say cinematic storytelling in general, whether you associate it to traditional cinema or cinematic VR, um, is that, you know, a story is told to you, right? You, in VR, you have a sense of presence uh, but you and you you feel like you're there, but there's a story that has been created ahead of time, and you are entering that story. You are experiencing that story. Uh, so you will have a sense in a cinematic VR piece that you're making discoveries because you have the agency of looking, you know, where you want, um, and you're making therefore you know loose associations that belong to you, the viewer, that are not necessarily something that was intended intended by the cinematic storytellers. Uh, but but you are still at the end of the game inside of the of a predetermined story. When you enter in an interactive world, you are making discoveries by yourself. You're making a lot of free associations between things, and you have this thrill of the, discovering the interactive features. You have this thrill of saying, you know what, I'm going to go in that direction, and I'm going to interact with that person. I'm just going to spend the next couple of minutes looking at that, and every step of the way. It's you making those decisions, and there's a pleasure that comes with that, that that I think comes from, you know, real life experiences, because in real life, you know, that's that's what we do. You know, we are not reality is not pre-baked for us to just kind of you see what I mean, like just yeah. receive. We are making choices and, 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 and that's what defines that's what defines ourselves, you know, in the physical world. Um, and so going inside of, of virtual reality, uh, either by yourself or with someone inside of a, a fully interactive world, um, and, and just the pleasure of, of, of making choices, the pleasure of being there and of interacting with the environment, with people, I think that, that it's very human. And I don't see that, uh, you know, losing steam uh, in the coming years. Uh, I think that it's, it's, uh, it's just something that, I think audiences will expect more and more from media experiences that they resemble, you know, real life experiences, that they provide the same kind of freedom and liberties and, and agency that, that we find inside of the real world. So I, I, I think it's going to just keep growing in that direction instead of, of receding. That's actually really wonderful to hear. Um, one last question before I let you go. Uh, we've been at this for a while and I, I love it. Um, the footage y'all get out of the ISS is incredible. Do you ever find yourself jealous of the astronauts when you're going over it? Because like you don't get to go and actually shoot. They're shooting for you. And then it comes back and here's this treasure trove. Uh, yeah, the answer is yes. <laughs> because uh, it's, um, you know, I've been hearing astronauts talk about how extraordinary their experience is. Um, you know, for the last two and a half years um, and uh, and just watching them work in that environment. You know, when we are preparing shots in space, um, we will see, you know, what the astronauts are doing. We will be there if there are questions, you know, while uh, the camera setups are being made and all that. And so um, we will get to, to, to feel like we're with them without being with them, you know, while we're, we're staying on Earth. And, um, and after that, when you watch the footage, um, of course, you feel like you're there because it's immersive virtual reality, uh, but you're not physically there and they are. And so just to see them flying, just a feeling of floating around and, and, and experiencing your world from above, you know, the overview effect that uh, the astronauts talk about when they go to the cupola are, are when they are on the spacewalk and they witness, you know, planet Earth in front of them. Um, there, there's something obviously so profound and powerful about that experience that uh, I could only dream of having it for real. That said, um, when we started the, this process, the whole purpose of sending virtual reality technology to space was to actually bring millions of people to that environment, to that very unique environment, to try to create the closest thing to uh, being actually an astronaut on a mission to space. And we thought that cinema will never be able to do that. Television, uh, neither. But through immersive media, we can bridge that gap. And uh, just recently, um, actually a week ago, uh, we took another camera system, a 360 3D camera system that we call the outer space camera outside of the International Space Station. We attached 
that VR camera to Canadarm2, which is the giant robotic arm outside of the space station. And we captured for four days visuals of the exterior of the space station, visuals of planet Earth in full you know, 3D 360 mm. glory. And we documented a full spacewalk of seven hours uh, working wow. with two astronauts outside of the ISS. And the footage that we captured, uh, we are just starting to download it from the space station. And so far, what I've seen is it's, it's extraordinary. The feeling of being outside and just witnessing the world and seeing a human in a spacesuit nearby and just feeling this ins- insignificant scale of a human compared to the scale of our planet, but at the same time, the insignificant scale of our planet compared to the size of the universe, you know, just to have that feeling, you get that through virtual reality. And, and I think that that's fantastic. So for me, at, at this point, it's, it's not so much about, uh, you know, going physically going to space. It's about how to create those immersive media experiences and how to share them in the most immersive and physical way with the broadest audience in the world so that, so that we bridge that gap between Earth and space in a way. And we use that technology to do that. And I think that's, that's what I should be focused on doing. I love it. I love it. I, and, and that's, I know the spacewalk is going to be part of like the next, uh, the next episode of space explorers that I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, Felix, uh, the infinite is at the arsenal contemporary art Montreal through November 7th. Thank you so much for, being on the show with us today. This is so exciting. Well, thanks for having me. And uh, yes, the spacewalk will be part of the upcoming episode of uh, ISS Experience. It's also going to be part of the Infinite uh, when we launch uh, with our second city in uh, that's going to be in Houston. So we're going to be in Houston starting uh, mid-December uh, of this year. And the spacewalk will be integrated to the show by that time. Oh, fantastic. I got some friends in Houston who uh, who will definitely uh, be making a beeline, I, I can tell. Awesome. Each week, we like to check in with our friends from around the Immersiverse. This time out, we have Matthew Stein, who is a puzzle designer, a contributing writer to our friends over at Room Escape Artist, and a member of their hive mind, as they like to call it, which is what they do with their online reviews. Matthew, thank you for uh, coming on the show this week. Thank you so much for having me. So for those who don't know what the hive mind over at REA is, uh, David and Lisa start, started this up a, a little while ago. What is it? At the start of the pandemic, we saw a massive wave of new virtual offerings of puzzle games, escape rooms, things that were suddenly accessible to anybody in the world. And there were many new games being released each week, far too many for David and Lisa Spira to review all themselves. So they actually gathered a collection of about a dozen of their uh, friends in the puzzle world to help review these many new games in a sort of collaborative format. So three to five of us review each game with anywhere from two to four new games being reviewed each week. And we've covered everything from avatar adaptations of uh, in-person escape rooms to some more tabletop stuff recently as well. So what's been one of the things that you've seen lately as, as a group online that's uh, been really excellent that people should go check out. Yes, we have a Hivemind review coming soon for a new tabletop puzzle game from the Netherlands called the Vandermist Dossier from Diorama. And it absolutely blew me away. In the world of tabletop puzzle games, I really look for narrative puzzle integration of the puzzles really being essential to the narrative. And this game did this spectacularly combined with beautiful documents and just really clever puzzle design. It was one of the best tabletop games I've played this past year. Have there been any sort of emerging trends? I mean, we've been at this pandemic thing for a while now, and I got to imagine you all have seen so many waves of, of just content be developed and then kind of go away and then come back. What's Where do things stand right now? Absolutely. So I've had the pleasure of covering over 120 different virtual games with the Hive Mind this past year. 
And it's been fascinating seeing the progression of these games. I've had the pleasure of getting to say this is the best something so many times because the games keep just building on each other. They keep adding new features, refining their design based on learnings from previous games. And as things are starting to open up a bit more now, as we're seeing in-person escape rooms become an option again, I'm seeing things shift a bit away from uh, straight virtual adaptations of in-person games. We're not seeing as many new versions of those coming about. Whereas the games that were designed specifically for virtual play are really shining. They're only available in the virtual realm. And the ones that really cleverly take advantage of the virtual medium are just absolutely priceless because they're both accessible globally. So they have a much wider audience than a company would have just within their sort of regional market. And they also are able to do things that you wouldn't necessarily be able to do in an in-person show. Who's making this stuff? Is it the same people who are making some of those like adapt a a real life room or is it an entirely different category of creator? Yeah, it's, it's a mix. We actually never really saw some of the top escape room companies enter the virtual market, whereas we've seen some really creative offerings from other escape room companies. So one of my favorites early on in the pandemic was The Truth About Edith from Mad Genius Escapes up in Portland. And then we're also seeing some immersive theater puzzle crossovers. So recently, the Hive Mind reviewed Reboot from Walking Shadow, which describes itself as an online play with puzzles. And that also reminded me of another game that we especially enjoyed a few months ago called Isolation from Escape Room Melbourne. And both of these are designed specifically for virtual play. Um, They combine immersive theater elements with puzzles and touch on really interesting themes. Both relate to sort of the humanness of AI in clever ways that acknowledge the fact that we are communicating with, with the characters, with the actors, with the puzzles online and not ignoring that medium, not ignoring that means of communication, but rather leaning into it thematically. Are those companies that like also do physical, you know, events or, or do they? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So Escape Room Melbourne, I believe has a slew of in-person rooms in Australia. Walking Shadow is an immersive theater company that I hadn't actually heard of before, but in researching them after being really impressed by Reboot, um, I saw that they'd done a number of these sort of immersive theater plus puzzles shows in the past, presumably in person though. Do you know what, what part of the country they're based out of or where in the world they're based out of? Somewhere in the Midwest, but I don't quite remember. It's it's all good. <laughs> yeah. It's pop quiz time, right? Yes. Um, yeah, that, that's interesting. I mean, do is there like another wave of that uh, going to hit? And we were talking a little bit before we, we got on and you seem to think that there's there's some we're about to get another drop of stuff. Yeah, for a while, I think, as I said, as in-person stuff was opening up, I sensed a bit of hesitancy in the industry that people thought maybe we should shift back to just our physical in-person offerings. And there really wasn't any new stuff of note for a few months. And then there's a whole wave of really exciting new things right now. Um, Just released is... The Traveler's Guide to Little Sodaberg from Meridian Adventure Company, also in Portland, which is absolutely fantastic. They're wonderful creators. Um, I think David and Lisa mentioned a few weeks ago that there's a new game coming also from Agent Venture. We were really impressed with their uh, three-part sort of audio puzzle drama earlier in the pandemic, and they're making something uh, even more elaborate and multimedia now. And yeah, and, and new tabletop offerings as well. This is less pandemic-dependent, but I mentioned before the Vandermist dossier, which is coming to Kickstarter later this month, I believe. Also, The Light in the Mist from Post Curious is a tarot puzzle tale, which I playtested a little while back, and it's absolutely incredible. Totally going to revolutionize the narrative puzzle world and just how much content you can fit into a small package, as well as how you can combine puzzles with absolutely beautiful art in really meaningful, uh, tangible ways. So there's there's a lot of really exciting stuff on the horizon, both in the virtual world and in the physical tabletop puzzle world. Now, in a second, I'm going to ask you, uh, you know, what someone who's listening to this could go check out right now. 
Uh, but um, I'm curious as a, as a reviewer and as a, as a puzzle designer, when you're, when you're encountering this work, what is it that you're looking for? What, what is it that you're chasing uh, as kind of a, as a high when you're, when you're playing this stuff? I've played hundreds of these games and I'm constantly thinking about them through a design lens as well. So I think especially through the past year, I don't want to be bored. I don't want an experience that's just neutral, that maybe is clean and fine, but doesn't try to do things out of its comfort zone, perhaps. So I'd much rather find an experience that experiments with how an un- unseen before puzzle mechanic can contribute to the narrative and maybe sort of succeeds, but is at least interesting, has me thinking afterwards, than something which just has sort of Gen 1 standard escape room puzzles that are fine, fun, but don't really have a point to them. So really what I'm looking for and what I'm actively on the lookout for as inspiration for my design, my own designs, is puzzles that drive forward the narrative directly rather than just accompanying the narrative where the ahas of the puzzles are actually the narrative ahas as well and it's really hard to do this I I can attest because I tried to do this in my own puzzle designs as well but when it's done effectively it's absolutely brilliant and has you thinking for days afterwards okay With, with that as a setup if if someone wants to run out right now and do one of these online uh experiences what would you recommend A few of the ones I mentioned previously actually are still some of my top recommendations. Escape Room Melbourne's Isolation is one of the most brilliant shows I've seen during the pandemic. Um, It has some interactive narrative framing, trying not to spoil what it actually is, um, which still has me thinking now why other shows haven't done something in that direction. And I think it really sets a beautiful precedent for how a virtual puzzle show can be meaningful. Um, another great one, which is closing soon, actually, is the trio, the trilogy from Mystery Mansion Regina of Night Terrors, Devile's Curio Shop, and uh, Sleepy Man, I think is the name of their third game. And they went through a bit of a name change at the last minute. So yeah, it ended at Sleepy Man. Um, and then there's a bunch of really exciting stuff in the audio realm as well, which is more influenced by sort of D&D-esque RPG style play. But my favorite examples of that come from Trapped Puzzle Rooms um, in Minneapolis. And my two favorite games from theirs are Super Squad and Spirit Train. Super Squad is just a lot of fun. Everybody on your team gets to play superheroes. You each get different superpowers. Really just taking advantage of the fact that you're not in a physical space. You can have people doing absolute magic. Um, and Spirit Train is a Studio Ghibli-inspired uh, magical realist two-hour epic adventure, which has some really cool meta meta puzzle structural elements. Um, it's currently not playable right now, but they have another game called Escape from Escape Island, which was playable at Recon a few weeks ago, and I believe I heard is going to be playable again starting later this year for for the public and especially if you're an escape room enthusiast that did some meta things that absolutely blew my mind and had us laughing the entire time so highly recommend that when that's available to play hopefully sometime soon and that company again is is trapped puzzle rooms though their audio games are under the name uh, audio escape adventures all right well, Matthew, thank you for jumping on the show this week and bringing us all these wonderful options for folks to check out. Thank you so much for having me. I hope everyone has fun with these. I certainly have been myself. And of course, you can catch more from the Room Escape Artist Hivemind at roomescapeartist.com. Say hello to David and Lisa when you do. Just want to take a moment right now to thank our latest backers, Annie Palladino and Kelly. Uh, they back us via patreon.com slash no proscenium, which is indeed the way we keep this place running. It's not a joke. It's not an imaginary story. No, I don't know how we do it either. 
<laughs> it's 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 kind of working. Uh, if you can, please, please uh, drop in two or five dollars a month. That's really all we ask for. And it unlocks all kinds of things, including the bonus episodes of the podcast that you don't get any other way. Uh, once again, patreon.com slash no proscenium. Uh, and if you are already a backer, please just, uh, tell folks about what we do. Um, there's no advertising like word of mouth. And if you look at our Patreon, uh, you know, we don't exactly have the money to spend on a bunch of advertising. And let me tell you, when we try, uh, internet advertising, it ain't what it used to be. I'll just put it that way. All right. But for everyone who does back us, thank you. It, it really, it uh, keeps a roof over my head, which, uh, you know, not insignificant when you have podcasting equipment. Hi, this is Patrick McLean, the Chicago curator with No Proscenium. You've reached the part of the show where we introduce the pick of the week. Think of this as a companion piece to both the Review Crew podcasts, which you can find just one spot back on the podcast feed, and the weekly rundown review, which you can find on our website. This week, the pick of the week is brought to us by... Hi, this is Kevin Gossett, the LA Reviews Editor for NoPro. Hey, you're the one who's usually doing what I'm I, doing. I know, we've switched today. How fun. Oh. It's pretty wild. Well, that must mean you have a pick of the week for us. I do. And this week's pick of the week is Deadbolt Mystery Society's Conspiracy Box. Uh, Deadbolt Mystery Society puts out uh, different boxes. So Conspiracy is actually not currently available for purchase, but they have many others that run around the, it looks like the $30, $40 price range for a single box or subscriptions um, that run anywhere from three to six months for a slightly higher price point than they We'll ship a box to you. It contains a bunch of items and goodies to pick through, and then you get to solve a mystery. Yeah, and so could you actually maybe dive into a little bit about what your experience with conspiracy was about? Like, what what is the conspiracy? What was in the box that you had to puzzle through? Sure. So uh, Patrick and I actually worked on this one together. It was a uh, Zoom experience. Actually, it was a Discord experience on where we record this show. So it was a conspiracy user or a private, private investigator, and they ask you to figure out some funny messages that appeared in a newspaper, and then you have to unravel a conspiracy through these kind of puzzles and information in the box. Um, it kind of takes part in phases where you, you solve one piece, and then you open up an envelope, and there's more information and more puzzles, and then you work through that, and there's maybe a third envelope to kind of work through as you figure out what's going on. Um, so it starts out in kind of one direction before a swerve a little bit way through that I think we both thought was a kind of fun little twist that added to it. Um, it stays firmly in the in the conspiracy landscape, but it, it goes off on a little different direction than the way it looked like it was going, which I think makes it fun. And I really enjoyed how, you know, it was a conspiracy built within a conspiracy. Like, it definitely felt like we were uncovering something really big. Yeah, and I think that was that was one of the kind of more interesting parts of it, is it really, as you kind of turned your way through it, it was uncovering these new paths and leads. And I think that was also part of what we both liked about it, is it feels like you're almost reading a mystery novel. There is a lot of text in this that you reach via QR codes, but... With that, they're able to kind of expand on more of a story where they dive into the characters and the twists and kind of add these layers to it that are maybe not there in a kind of mystery box where they kind of tend to be more whodunit murder board type things. And this one is a little bit more of, I think, what we describe as like a, a page turner mystery novel as you're kind of waiting to find out what happens next as you, as you dive deeper into the uh, conspiracy to unravel it. And of course, you can't talk about a puzzle box without talking about the puzzles. And this one, they are quite varied, and there's no real ciphers to speak of. I think there's maybe one. Um, so it was enjoyable to kind of work through those and discover the different mysteries and, and how those fit together in ways that mostly made sense with the puzzles, too. Sometimes it was 
you start out looking through the newspaper and looking through the articles and connecting them to the ads. And that's where it starts, and which is like a different kind of thing and something you might actually see in like a, a mystery novel where they've left these these keys and codes and phrases to find out uh, who's behind it. And then you, you work through it in different ways and you're cracking passwords and you're looking at star maps and, and different things like that as you as you go through these um, mysteries and puzzles in the box. And Yeah, I, I would completely agree because I, I feel like a gripe I typically have with escape rooms and escape room boxes or mystery boxes is that there's sometimes puzzles there just for puzzle sake. And I felt like everything we encountered was definitely had reason to be there. There was a reason why we were presented this obstacle in the narrative and we had to uncover it with other information we have, whether it's tangible uh, things from the box or it's some clue or some element from a character or the narrative at large that leads us into solving it. Yeah. And I think that was what I think we both thought made it so enjoyable. And I think work through together. um, There was, as we talked about on the podcast, uh, because we were working on kind of over Zoom, it was allowed us kind of like, oh, you can figure this puzzle out, I can figure this puzzle out, let's trade, and we didn't have to turn to the hint system. It was just kind of working our way through it that way. And it was it was a lot of fun to do it that way. Um, you could probably do it by yourself. You could do it with a, a partner or friend at your home or over Discord or Zoom, and you'll have a, have a fun time unraveling whatever mystery you've chosen from Deadball Mystery Society. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you, Kevin, so much for uh, coming on. I know it's such a rarity to have you here, but uh, thanks for taking the time to talk about this pick with me. Joining us now is Julia M. Ritter, professor at the dance department at Mason Gross School of the Arts, Rutgers University, and the author of Tandem Dances, Choreographing Immersive Performance. Julia, thank you for joining us on the show today. Thanks so much, Noah. So glad to be here. This has been this has been some time coming. So, um, Julia, just for starters, what do you mean when you say tandem dances? This is a term you lay out at the beginning of the book. And it's kind of a, a crux here. Uh, so uh, yeah, start us there at the beginning with the title. Absolutely. So, you know, it really starts for me with uh, this experience that I had when I went to see Sleep No More uh, by Punch Drunk. Uh, many people are familiar of, with the work um, if they haven't had the opportunity to actually experience them themselves. They may have read about it. Um, I had an experience where I was in a space, uh, I won't reveal exactly what it was because it's actually in the book, but I had this moment in which I was moving and interacting in silence with, uh, another audience member. And I was like, this is a kind of dance and not one that we've rehearsed, but we're doing it together in conjunction with one another. And together we are making performance. Um, So this whole idea of tandemness came from that particular experience. Uh, There wasn't anybody else watching it that we thought until we exited the space we were in. And then we realized they actually had been watched by other, uh, other spectators or audience members. So again, the tandemness that's central to the book is this idea of bodies working in conjunction with one another. Uh, and I find that that is um, kind of a, has been for me in the in the immersive pr- productions that I've experienced uh, here in the U.S. and different places in Canada, in the U.K. Uh, is key. It's key to this this uh, this way of designing immersive performance to include audiences. One of the points you make pretty early on is that when there's scholarly discussion of this particularly in the theater realm, there's occasionally a reference to the fact that a choreographer is involved, but choreography isn't really, the terminology of it isn't really engaged with in in that theatrical scholarship so much. And that does strike me as odd because when we're talking about immersive performance, 
you know, whether it's theater or dance or, or, or music, I would say, we're, we're inevitably talking about bodies in space and, and the motion of bodies through space. Exactly. Yeah. And I think you and I, Noah, had, we had a conversation really, really going years back now about the, the, the embodiment that is so present within immersive performance for performers and for audiences. You know, we're talking about uh, inviting people into spaces uh, to kind of come out of their seats, to position themselves within the, within the center of action. Um, but that can't happen, you know, unless there is some choreographic element to one, first keep people safe, uh, and also to really cr- craft experiences that will allow them to feel part of that action, really, you know, in essence, to facilitate their immersion. Um, and I think, you know, part of it is is these binary divisions between the fields, between mm. theater, between dance. Um, I'm, I'm someone who likes to, to be in both of those realms in terms of my scholarship and also my own practice. Um, I, I, I'm a dancer who talks. <laughs> I'm one of those dancers. So I've spent quite a, a lot of time within the theatrical realm. Uh, and it's, I think the the difference there is, um, you know, theater scholars are focusing on maybe different things when they're looking at immersive. For me, this book was really just uh, a way to say, look, let's turn that lens slightly towards how bodies are immersed, how audiences are immersed in this. And it, of course, we know the performers are immersed in their work. But if we're talking about how audiences are immersed, then choreography really needs to be a part of the discussion because I think that kinesthesia, improvisatory um, engagement, and uh, you know designing environments is so much about the how the audience how the audience's body moves through space and time, which you know these are these are kind of heuristic concepts around dance, body, space, time, energy, relationship. These are tools that we use uh, when we talk about. Uh, when we talk about choreography, but they're certainly all present within theater as well. Well, and there's there's a dimension to this where I think people hear the word choreography and they think, oh, we've got to teach the audience a dance. We're gonna we're gonna take them into a class, instruct them, and workshop them. And that can happen, but that's not the only way that choreography happens. This is a, this is a this is a broader thinking about that practice, right? Absolutely. I mean, for me, I take a, a granted, you know, in the book and, and some people might want to uh, have debates with me about how broad a definition I make for choreography in the book. But for me, it's the orchestration of bodies in, in motion. Um, and that is choreographically applicable, whether you're talking about guiding people through a theme park uh, or through a, a theatrical production uh, or th- theatrical experience, um, you know we all we've all heard the stories of Walt Disney and his meticulous uh, crafting of Walt Di- uh, Walt Disney World to bring people into that space. So really, it is the orchestration of of bodies, but that orchestration has elements of allows the audience to have elements of freedom. Uh, and and cr- their own creative decision making. So, uh, improvisation, improvisational scores are a really large part of what I discuss in the book, and how those scores, um, you know, tinker with these ideas of power and freedom, and agency and control. And I think that's uh, that is also one of the points I make in the book is that this is that. This is where it's really a paradoxical and also super exciting and super generating way to involve audiences because there are parameters, but those parameters can be can be played with, can be tinkered with so that that uh, audiences fall in and out of these structures and they can actually have some agency. I think we're going to maybe pick some of this more apart in detail in a little uh, overtime. But I wanted to jump. There's a, a chapter in the book uh, that is called Co-Authority. <laughs> I said it right in the beginning and now I'm messing it up now. Co-Authorality. Uh, and it's specifically focusing on uh, Blue Mouth Inc.'s uh, 
dance marathon and their approach there. I'm wondering, cause this is a piece cause other parts of the book, you know, uh, there's, there's a, a section about sleep no more. There's a section about then she fell, but I have not had the pleasure of experiencing dance marathon. Although I've, I've done, um, I used to do some swing dancing back in the day, but that's not here nor there. Um, so, like, I was familiar enough with that's some big. some of the some of the ideas um, about like a, a class and free dance and 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 going through different styles. Um, but this this idea of co-authorality and that and then it comes so late in in the book, it feels a little bit like kind of a, a teleological point to this idea of. Of the relationship of the audience to the work, right? Yeah. So Blue Mouth Incorporated um, is a Toronto and Brooklyn-based company. Uh, they've been around for about twenty years. Um, they started their dance marathon in uh, two thousand nine as a. Uh, as a touring production. So that's one way in which I feel that particular production in the book is different than some of the others I discuss. Uh, it's not, uh, it's not embedded within a particular site. It moves, it travels to festivals, um, and goes places and they restage it that way. And I think what's, what's really key for me in terms of presenting the term of co-authorality is, is the way that, Blue Mouth actually is a collective. So um, they're the lo- one of the longest running collectives in Canada, um, dedicated to collective cre- creation and egalitarianism in their creative processes. So what re- that this idea of being co- co-authorial, co- being in the state of being co-authorial, um, kind of generated out of their own work practices, but isn't but isn't only specific to them. So you know, I was looking into you know, uh, Roland Barthes' theory of, of, you know, the death of the author, um, which basically relocates the authority of making meaning from a text from the author to the reader. So how could that work in performance, right? So you could go from the artistic director or the director or the choreographer to the, to the audience member. Um, and I think what was, what was so fascinating to me is that within immersive performance, especially if 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 you accept the proposition that I make that that it, improvisational structures are the framework that is inviting the audience in, and then also at the same time controlling their behavior, there is ultimately elements of authorship, right? So you're asking uh, the you're ask it's a big ask, but you're asking the audiences here. This is a structure work asking you to engage with. There's going to be some creative thinking. There's going to be some agency. There's some going to be some interpretation. Um, so that is, that's kind of where that term came from. Since, you know, being, uh, being a member of the, the dance, uh, the dance marathon performances, I actually watched a few. Um, and then I also was a, a member of the, the dancing ensemble, uh, during them it became clear to me that the ways in which people were in that immersive performance, immersed in the performance, they were super, super involved in um, being creative, being creative in the moment. And they were generating performance and their involvement and their participation was uh, really as a co-author. Now they weren't co-authors in the sense that they had designed the performance itself or conceptualized the performance, but they were generating content and performance that was meaningful to them and also meaningful to the individuals around them that were audiencing them. So that's, that's where that concept comes from. Well, there's, I feel like there's so much packed into that idea and so many places we could go, but the show show only gives us so much time these days. Of course, I'm the one who decides what that is. So, uh, could you stick around for a little bit and and help us unpack some stuff in some overtime? Absolutely. All right, we're going to do that, uh, Julia. For those who want to who want to get their hands on the book Tandem Dances, how do they go about doing that? couple different ways. You can go to Oxford University Press and just type in Tandem Dances, Choreographing Immersive Performance. Uh, it's also available through Amazon. Easy, easy to get your hands on a copy of it. 
Fantastic. And for those who want to go through Oxford University Press, that is just www.oup.com. Even shorter than Amazon. So there you go. Fewer letters. O-U-P. <laughs> You'll be fine. <laughs> the spaceman doesn't need all your money. And with that, Julia Ritter, thank you for joining us on the show today. My pleasure. Thanks, Noah. Once again, I want to thank all our guests on this week's show. That would be Felix Lajanez, Matthew Stein, and Julia Ritter. You know, Julia and I talked for about another half hour uh, in the overtime segment, so that's going to hit the bonus feed in the podcast, which again, Patreon backers get access to for as little as $2 a month. Uh, so if uh, you want to hear more of that conversation, I encourage you to do that. And then uh, you will unlock this whole feed full of other things, um, that we'll keep putting things into because you got to put the things in to, to get the money out. Apparently that's, that's, that's the way things work. That's, that's, uh, that's America for you. All right. Um, it's, uh, it's spooky season We're we're in it. Uh, it's busy season. Uh, I'm, I'm just under the gun left and right. Uh, the LA and New York newsletters, uh, are going to come out, uh, hopefully on Saturday morning. Um, that's looks how that's going to be. So if you're listening to this on Friday, uh, look forward to that in your inbox tomorrow. Uh, just, just super busy, super busy. Uh, I'll probably also do a bit of a, um, I'll do an irregulars, uh, in, uh, in the feed, uh, before long, uh, for the, uh, for the backers to kind of like fill everybody in on what's going on behind the scenes. That's where we do that stuff these days. Um, and yeah, uh, we are moving forward with the next stage summit, uh, which will, we'll hopefully have a little festival element We're we're planning the festival element. We're just watching the way things are developing with this whole, you know, pandemic that we're still in, uh, making sure that we're not overcommitting. But, uh, if, uh, if you're interested in getting a, uh, a ticket, uh, and you had already bought a ticket to the here summit and festival, you are eligible at this point in time to buy a streaming only or a streaming plus pass, which saves your space in line, uh, for when the three day passes go on sale and the three day passes are scheduled to go on sale on the 28th of this month. We'll also be opening up the streaming only tickets, uh, for, to folks, uh, who did not attend previously. And what that's going to do if you want to, uh, come in person is you're going to get first crack at the tickets, uh, the 3d tickets that we're going to be putting on sale in the middle of October for folks. We'll also have some more announcements about uh, who's going to be there this week. I've been gathering some headshots uh, and biographies. I got to update the website. There's a lot to do. There's a lot to do. And yeah, I do it all myself. No, it's not entirely true. Uh, I do all that part myself, but all the no pro stuff you see that is, you know, no pro would not keep running without Catherine, all the social media stuff you see, she's a point on there. Uh, Patrick uh, helps out a lot, keeping the now playing sections running on no pro. Of course, we're still working on the everything immersive.com site. Chris Grimm uh, is, is preparing a new revision of that soon, which I gotta, I gotta go bug him about actually like, Chris, what's up? We've got the new front page. Come on. And now I've told everybody we're going to have a new front page. So Chris, if you're listening, everybody knows now. Um, and yeah, I was at not scary farm last night. Did that for the first time ever, which is ironic given that I was born just a few miles from there. Um, and, uh, yeah, uh, we'll have, um, all of that will be in next week's review crew. Ain't going to do it right now. Uh, it was, it was a trip. It was a trip on, on many levels, many levels. Uh, and you'll, that's your tease. There you go. Don't give them any more. You've got more shows to do. Uh, and the call sheet will return. If not this weekend, then it'll return next week for certain, uh, probably even moving, uh, just when it is in the schedule, just because again, there is so much going 
on. Yeah. Uh, if you, you know, the door is open. So, uh, if there's, if there's stuff you want to see on the show, things you're interested in, uh, any feedback or comments, feel free to write us at pitches, P I T C H E S at no proscenium.com. That's the most efficient way. The whole team sees that. Uh, and other than that, you can always, you know, hit us up in our mentions, uh, or drop us a DM on Twitter or Facebook. I believe the DMs are open on Twitter as well. And yeah, that's it. I feel like I'm missing something, but it's been, uh, it's been a wacky morning and it's already uh, 1240 in the afternoon when I'm recording this part. So, uh, let's get this out the door, shall we? All right, let's do the credits. The sustaining backers of No Persinium are Ari Herstan, Brittany, Deborah Robinson, Elaine, Emily Gillette, Jay Bushman, David Basuk, Lonnie Hanson, Paul Farnell, Mark Baltazar, Samuel Mystery, Sydney Guillory, and Jan Budman. Thank you all. Uh, they all come in really hard, and uh, that keeps this running. Like, seriously, like, they are the backbone. Patreon.com slash No Persinium. We're only looking for 2 or $5 a month. Uh, and, uh, if that's, uh, too steep for you, or if you're already in the pool, and I know a lot of you are, please just spread the word around and even spread the word about the Patreon. Um, it really makes a huge difference. The associate producer of this show is Parker Sella. The music for No Persinium is by Chris Porter of the Speakeasy Society. Special thanks to Siobhan O'Loughlin for voicing our intro. Catherine Yu is the executive editor over at No Persinium which is also here and the no pro podcast is written, edited, host, produced and mixed by yours. Truly. That means all the errors are mine until next time. I'll see you at the show. <laughs>